We must find out what we're meant to do with our lives. His mother said, Anansi, are you still hungry? And as she walked, she dreamed of what she would do with that milk. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family tales, and more. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's always a pleasure for me every time you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And we like to say that we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. And the stories that we're going to bring you today may make that just a tiny bit difficult. They're so crazy. But we're going to bring you a story about Anansi and his love of food from Donna Washington. We're going to bring you an ancient story called The Last Sapotec King from Carolina Quiroga Stultz from a collection called Quentos Myths and Legends. You're going to hear from Laura Sims, the New York storyteller with a story called The Lion and the Man. You're going to hear from Jenny Cargill Strong too and also Tim Lowry with a crazy tall tale called Mule Humans from a collection called Out No Book. And, of course, we'll wrap up with a story from Geraldine Buckley. After all that craziness, we'll share a personal experience from Geraldine Buckley that is actually no less crazy than the tall tales and folk tales that you're going to hear until then. We're going to begin with a story called Anansi and the Hat-Shaking Dance from Donna Washington. This is from a collection called Troubling Trouble. And, of course, we always love to hear an Anansi story, the West African trickster character. So many cultures have a trickster, whether it's a rabbit or a coyote. And of course, this is Anansi the spider. Donna Washington, the storyteller behind this tale, happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. Now, Anansi the spider is a trickster. He loves to play tricks on people and he loves to eat. And when there isn't very much to eat, he always finds a way to fill his belly. But sometimes his tricks backfire. Now, quite some time ago, Anansi the spider had long, flowing hair. Now, I know that when you see spiders today, they do not have long, flowing hair. This story explains why. It's called Anansi and the Hat-Shaking Dance. You see, there was a famine, and there wasn't a lot to eat. And Anansi was sitting home, looking around his house, wishing he had something to eat, and trying to figure out how he could get food out of his neighbors. But he knew his neighbors didn't have any food either. He sat there and thought and thought, who do I know who always has food? And then he figured out who he should go visit. His mother. Because mothers always have food, that's their job. So Anansi got up, combed out that long, silky hair, and put on his favorite hat. And he went down the road to his mother's house. And when he got there, he knocked upon the door. Pump, pump, pump. His mother opened the door and said, Anansi, how wonderful it is to see you. Come on inside. And Anansi went right to the table, put his hat down, sat at the table in a chair, and smiled up at her. She said, Anansi, are you hungry? And he said, just a little bit. 
And she said, well, hold on a second, I'll get you something to eat. And she went into the room and returned with a whole basket full of bread. And Anansi ate it. His mother said, Anansi, are you still hungry? And he said, just a little bit. She said, well, hold on a second. His mother went into the kitchen and came out with a whole tureen full of soup. And Anansi picked up the tureen. His mother said, Anansi, are you still hungry? And Anansi said, just a little bit. Well, she said, oh, hold on a second. And she went into the kitchen and came out with a whole platter full of stewed vegetables. And Anansi started eating vegetables. His mother said, Anansi, are you still hungry? And he said... Just a little bit. Well, hold on a second. And she took the platter away and came out with a whole tray full of roasted meat. Mm, Anansi picked up that meat. His mother said, Anansi, are you still hungry? And he said, just a little bit. So she went into the kitchen and came out with something called a milk tart, which is a creamy almond custard tart. And Anansi folded it in half and then folded it into quarters, opened his mouth as wide as he could, and shoved it in there. His mother said, a Nazi, are you still hungry? And he said, just a little bit. She said, well, I don't have any more food. He said, well, why don't you go down to the market and get some more and I'll sit right here and wait for you. (laughs) So his mother went into the next room to get her pocketbook so she could go to market. And a Nazi sat there feeling pretty good about himself when he started smelling something that smelled really, really good. He got up. He started following his nose down down the hall. What? What is that? It smells so good. And he got to the kitchen, and there, over the fire, were pine nuts. Now, Anansi loved pine nuts. Some people might have taken one pine nut. Some might have taken two. But Anansi... Is very, very greedy. He didn't want one pine nut. He didn't want two pine nuts. He reached his hands in there and pulled out every single one of those hot pine nuts. Ooh, ah, they were so hot. He was trying to throw them up in the air, blow on them, and eat them at the same time. Ah, ooh, ah, 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 ah. And then he heard the front door open. His mother must have forgotten something, and she was coming back. And he knew if she saw him with those pine nuts, she'd throw him out and she wouldn't let him eat. So Anansi didn't know what to do. He looked around. Where could he hide him? And then he had an idea. He ran back to the room with the table and dumped all the hot pine nuts inside of his hat. 
and smoke started coming out of the top of his hat. And he knew if his mother saw the smoke coming out of his hat, she'd look in the hat, she'd see those pine nuts, and she'd throw them out. So he put the hat on top of his head, on top of his long, flowing, silky hair. And those hot pine nuts started burning the top of his head. <laughs> he was trying to be quiet, but those hot pine nuts were so hot. His mother came in. She said, Anansi, what are you doing? Are you leaving? No, no, I'm not, I'm not leaving. He started flapping that hat around, trying to get a little cool air underneath it. <laughs> His mother said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm singing and I'm, I'm, a, I'm doing the hat shaking dance. <laughs> he started flapping that hat around and jumping up and down. He was trying to jump those hot nuts up into the top of that hat and off his head. His mother said, that looks like fun. Do you mind if I do it? He said, no, no, go get a hat. His mother ran to the back room, came out with a hat and put it on top of her head. She started flapping it. And Anansi, oh, his head was burning. He started trying to flap that hat a little more, get a little cool air in there. (laughs) He danced to the front door. His mother danced right after him. Anansi ripped the door open, ran down the stairs, dancing all the way. (laughs) His mother danced right after him. They danced all the way down the road to the town. And they were having market at the town. And Anansi danced right into the middle of everyone. <laughs> His mother danced right after him. Everyone stopped and said, what are you two doing? And Anansi's mother said, we're doing the hat shake and dance. And everyone said, that looks like fun. She said, well, everyone go get a hat. And everyone in town got a hat and started jumping up and down doing the hat shake and dance. Everybody was having a good old time, kicking up their feet, flapping their hats. Except poor Anansi, whose head was on fire. And finally he could not take it anymore. And he ripped his hat off. And all those pine nuts fell down around his feet. Everyone stopped dancing and looked at him. His mother said, Anansi! Oh my goodness! And as soon as she said that, everyone started laughing. And Anansi couldn't imagine what was so funny. He'd just been caught. He was embarrassed. And then he he reached up and felt his head. All of his long, silky hair was gone. And in its place were all these short, crunchy spikes sticking up everywhere. Anansi looked down and discovered that he'd burned all the hair off the top of his head, and it was all mixed in with the hot pine nuts around his feet. Anansi was so embarrassed, he dropped his hat and ran away. And to this day, spiders do not have long, silky hair. Oh, no. All they have are short, crunchy, hard spikes. They have those to remind them that they should never again steal from their mother. And that's the story of Anansi and the Hat-Shaking Dance. (laughs) 
Donna Washington with Anansi and the Hat Shaking Dance here on the Appleseed. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Carolina Quiroga Stultz up next after a quick break, and also from Laura Sims and Tim Lowry and Geraldine Buckley and more. I'm Sam Payne. See you in a minute. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. You've already heard a story from Donna Washington, an Anansi story, Anansi, the West African trickster spider character. And up next, we've got a historical tale from Carolina Quiroga Stultz. It goes way back to conflicts between Zapotec and Aztec warriors. Carolina Quiroga Stultz shares true stories and myths and legends, and this is called The Last Zapotec King. Carolina Quiroga Stultz on the Appleseed. The Last King. It is the year of 1487 of the Christian era. Cosijoesa is a young warrior of 30 years old and had been recently appointed the new Zapotec King. Today, he is in his palace in the city of Juchitan in the gardens of the trees of white flowers. Today, Cosijoesa is hosting a diplomatic ceremony. He is welcoming emissaries from all the other kingdoms that have come to pay their respects and, of course, to congratulate him. The next one to talk is the Aztec emissary. Great Cosijoesa! Magnificent light that makes the ether tremble. Ahuizotl, our mighty Aztec king, wishes you uh, prosperity and uh, <laughs> many descendants. And as a symbol of his friendship, Ahuizotl sends you many presents. <laughs> our mighty king only asks for you to deliver to him some of your trees of white flowers that grow only here in Huchitan. Cosijoesa reflects, the truth is that the Zapotecs and the Aztecs have never been friends. Then why? Why is Ahuizotl, the Aztec king, asking for those trees. Why now? Was this a bait? Does he want to start another war? Cosijoesa needs to think his answer carefully. The wrong words can disturb the tense calm. As Cosijoesa ponders the options, he is interrupted by the impatient emissary. Cosijoesa! You know that Ahuizotl will have those trees one way or the other. Well, those poor manners led to an easy answer. Then no, he won't have my trees. A blood shed was unleashed, and it lasted for seven years. It was 
exactly what the Aztec king had been looking for. By 1494, the Aztecs had already destroyed all the major Zapotec cities, such as Mitla and Sachila. The Aztec forces were surrounding the outskirts of Juchitán, ready to destroy the Zapotec capital. All the Aztec soldiers were in high spirit, but they were also tired. What they didn't know is that the Zapotec soldiers inside the fortress of Juchitán had not fought yet. They were all well rested, and they had a secret weapon. That night, 30,000 Zapotec soldiers came out of the fortress of Juchitán, surrounded the Aztecs, and began to shoot their poisonous arrows. As a result, most of the Aztec soldiers were deadly wounded. Oh, Ahuizotl was furious. He had been so close, but now he had to flee and go back to Tenochtitlan, like the lion goes back to his cave to lick his wounds and plot his revenge. And here is when Montezuma II comes to play a major role. At the time, Montezuma is only Ahuizotl's nephew and one of his advisors. And Montezuma suggests that there could be an easier way to deal with that inconvenient neighbor. A female way. Coyolicansin, one of Ahuizotl's favorite daughters, also known as Cotton Flake, because her skin was pale, just like the moon. She was entrusted with the mission of seducing Cosijoesa, the Zapotec king, who had not yet found the perfect bride. The Aztecs have already gathered information on Cosijoesa's whereabouts. They knew when and where he would go to bathe. Then, a surprise love encounter was plotted. Oh, and when Cosijoesa saw Coyolican sin, he was taken by her beauty, by her seductive moves, and by her mysterious smile. To impress her, Cosijoesa began to talk about his riches, palaces, gardens, absolutely all he had. But she was unmoved because she was plain, the femme fatale. At last, she just said, Oh, I have wandered throughout these lands in search of my happiness, but I haven't found it yet. Oh, he wanted to be her happiness. So, he invited her to stay at his palace in Huchitan for a week. At the end, she just said, Great, Cosijoesa. I certainly appreciate all your kindness. But my heart begs me to go back 
to my Aztec family, to my father, Ahuizatl. What? Cosijoesa couldn't believe it. How could this be? His happiness was the daughter of his arch enemy. But now he was so in love with her that he was willing to do anything for her. So she went back to her Aztec family, followed by a long escort of Zapotec emissaries carrying gifts and a marriage proposal. Ahuizotl, the Aztec king, was delighted. His plan had worked. All those riches had come so easily. And the marriage proposal? Oh, a piece of cake. Now, he had to play the role of the sad father. So, Ahuizotl said, Oh, this proposal breaks my heart, my cotton flake, my beautiful Coyolicansen, my favorite daughter. Oh, how can I live without her? I'll figure it out, but I can see your king is wise, seeking an alliance with the greatest of all nations. This union will certainly bring power and peace at last. Well... The two lovebirds got married, and the celebration lasted four days. All the common people, Zapotecs and Aztecs, believed that finally peace had been accomplished. But what only a few knew was that Coyolican was still on a mission. She had been instructed to spy on the Zapotecs, often sending information back to her father about the Zapotecs' military strategies and on their secret weapon. Ahuizotl's only hope was that one day he could finally subdue the Zapotecs. However, Ahuizotl did not leave to see his ambitions fulfilled. He died in 1509, but Montezuma, his nephew and heir, pursued the old goals. When Montezuma II took possession of the Aztec throne, he sent an ultimatum to Cosijoesa. The beautiful Coyolicansin could either stay with her adopted Zapotec family and most likely die. Or she could go back to her Aztec blood and join them against their long-lasting enemies. Yet, Coyolicansin had made her choice long time ago. Soon after their first son was born, she confessed everything to Cosijoesa, who forgave her because, truly, she meant the world to him. Still, she continued spying, but this time for the Zapotecs. She kept feeding the Aztecs with the misleading information that her husband gave her. Yes, she chose to stay with her Zapotec family. Now it was up to Cosijoesa to decide 
Should he spare his people from another bloodshed, or should they fight? He chose life. He signed a treaty that made the Zapotecs a dependent kingdom of the Aztecs. It doesn't look like a win, right? But it was in the long run. Because what Cosijoesa knew and what Montezuma II failed to interpret in the omens they all witnessed for years is that right around the corner there was a third party coming to play a destructive and transformative role in the lives of all the native people of the Americas. It was the conquistadores, the Europeans. The Aztecs were almost wiped out. Perhaps because during their reign, they had only cultivated enemies. Yet, the Zapotecs survived. Until this day, the Zapotecs are still alive in the old Juchitán, today Oaxaca, México. Y colorín colorado, este cuento se ha acabado. The end. The last Zapotec king from Carolina Quiroga Stultz here on the Appleseed. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back with a story from New York storyteller Laura Sims, a story called The Lion and the Man. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard an old tale called The Last Zapotec King from Carolina Quiroga Stultz. And at the top of the hour, an Anansi tale from Donna Washington. Up next, a story called The Lion and the Man from Laura Sims, a New York storyteller, from a collection called Making Peace, Heart Uprising. Here's Laura Sims on The Appleseed. It's said that life feeds on life. A good hunter never hunts for sport. A good hunter loves the animal. A good hunter knows the animal. A good hunter becomes the animal. One hunts to feed oneself and all the people. Bless the man like the lion. There was once a great hunter. He was the heart's young man. One day he went out hunting lion. He didn't find any lion. He thought, hmm. There must not be any lion. So he lay down and fell asleep. He should have stayed awake. When he woke up, there was a lion hunting him. 
The lion sniffed him. He was so frightened. Tears came to his eyes, and the lion licked his tears. The lion lifted him up in his mouth, pushed him into a tree. His neck was caught in the fork of the tree. A branch pierced him. It hurt so much, tears came to his eyes, and for the second time, the lion licked his tears. He knew that the lion would drink water before killing him, so he lay as still as death. When the lion turned to go toward the river, he moved his neck because it hurt, and he fell out of the tree. The lion came back. The lion didn't like to be tricked. He sniffed him all over. He was so frightened. Tears came to his eyes, and the lion, for the third time, licked his tears. This was no ordinary lion. The lion put him back in the fork of the tree. Oh, it hurt! But he lay as still as death. The lion went to the hill, turned once, and then went to drink. The hunter threw himself from the tree. He ran back. As quickly as he could to his village, he went to his mother. He said, "Mother, mother, wrap me in the skins of wildebeest. There's a lion hunting me." His mother wrapped him in the skins of wildebeest and took his knife. Then she and all the people went out to gather food, and they left an old woman to watch the house. The lion was no fool. He licked the hunter's tears three times. He came looking for him. When he appeared on the top of the hill, the old woman said, "That's the heart's young man. He's a great hunter. I'll give myself to the beast." The old woman lay down beneath the lion. He sniffed her, but he didn't eat her. The old woman called everybody back. A mother took her newborn child. She gave the baby to the lion. The lion sniffed it and didn't eat that child. He should have stayed awake. His mother said, "My son, you are the heart's young man. But the lion will destroy the village." Give yourself to the lion. Take your knife. Let the lion kill you, but kill the lion as well. It's no ordinary lion. It's a sorcerer. He licked your tears three times. Jato je, jato ja o almadi ala jato da.
The hunter lay down. The lion leapt upon him. He pierced the lion's belly with his knife. In the morning, everyone went up to the hill. The lion and the man, the hunter and the hunted, the hunted and the hunter lay side by side, both dead. Laura Sims with The Lion and the Man here on The Apple Seed. And coming up now, a story called The Farm Girl and the New Dress. This is our Australian friend, Jenny Cargo-Strong, a longtime friend of the show, with a tale from a collection called Reaching for the Moon. Jenny Cargo-Strong on The Apple Seed. The Farm Girl and the New Dress A young farm girl got up well before sunrise to milk her cows. Soon her silver bucket was full of good, warm, frothy milk. She heaved the bucket up onto her shoulder and carefully carried it back to the farmhouse. And as she walked, she dreamed of what she would do with that milk. First, she would separate the cream from the buttermilk. With the cream, she would make the finest butter ever made. She'd sell that butter for a very high price and then she'd buy a dozen fertile eggs for hatching. The farm girl imagined the farmyards full of chicks. Those chicks would grow into fine young hens to sell at market and then she'd have enough money to buy a beautiful dress to wear to the spring fair. She hadn't had a new dress in years. Oh, yes, and she would buy a matching satin ribbon for her hair. Wouldn't the young men crowd around her at the dance, asking for walks around the fairgrounds? But she wouldn't be too quick to say yes. No, she would send them away with a toss of her head. Caught up in her daydream, the farm girl tossed her head, which knocked that bucket of milk right off her shoulder. All of the precious milk spilled onto the black, muddy ground. The girl began to cry, for with that spilled milk lay all of her dreams of cream, butter, chicks, a fine new dress, and all those handsome young men. The 
Farm Girl and the New Dress, told for you by Jenny Cargill Strong here on The Appleseed. And up next, we've got a story from Tim Lowry. Now, Tim does all kinds of things as a storyteller. He leads walking tours around his South Carolina town, telling the stories of his home. He tells personal stories about life experiences on stage before delighted audiences. He even at Christmas time shares the story of a Christmas carol as Charles Dickens, as Charles Dickens himself did so many years ago, live performances of his Christmas story. And this story is called Mule Humans. It's from a collection called Out No Book. And uh, it's a story passed through the Appalachian filter that so many stories get passed through as they get told by these great storytellers. It's a crazy one. Mule Humans by Tim Lowry on the Appleseed. Ladies and gentlemen, storyteller Tim Lowry. It is hot. It is so hot. Thank you all for coming out this evening right in the middle of these dog days of August. You know how it's the dog days, right? You check the almanac. Do you take the almanac? You don't? I thought you was a Methodist. Everybody takes the almanac. How do you know if you're going to plant by the signs unless you take the almanac? I always shop at Ace Hardware and I fuss at them because they don't have the almanac. And if you go over to Tractor Supply, they got the almanac. But that's a fur piece to drive from where I live. But I like to plant by the signs in the almanac. Did you know that last winter, the old farmer's almanac was the only weather service in the entire country to predict the polar vortex? They were. Yeah, they were the only ones who got it right. People say, that's just a bunch of old wives' tales. No, it ain't. They got it dead on when all the local weather services had no idea what was about to strike us. Everybody takes the almanac. You remember the Rourkes that lived over at Line Fork, Cross Pine Mountain? You know, Godsey and Mondy Rourke. They, they took the almanac. Oh, I see you don't recognize them. You probably know the other side of the family tree. Them what pronounced the name Roark. Yes, they's the ones that's got money and education. These wasn't Roarks, they's just Rorks. Yeah, old Godsey and Mondy Rourke. They lived in a little cabin about halfway up the mountain. Now, they took the farmer's almanac, had them a little patch of dirt, and they planted by the signs. But when they took the calendar out of their almanac and hung it up on the back wall, the nail slipped, and it fell off the back wall and slid down behind the stove, and they had lost track of what day it was. They didn't know that it was an amber day. Do you know about the amber days on the calendar in the almanac? There's four days in the year that's called amber days. Now, if you read a lot of history, you'll learn that they's put on the calendar by the Pope a long time ago for Catholics. It was a special day when you're supposed to give more offering and starve yourself like the Catholics like to do. But every Protestant knows that's really days when the devil runs patrol all through your neighborhood. Oh yeah, you don't ever swear a false oath or say something you might regret on an amber day because the devil, he'll make it stick. Well, their calendar had fallen down behind the stove and so Godsey and Mondy Rourke, they didn't know it was an amber day. They hadn't taken a particular notice. 
Now, Godsey Rourke was the laziest piece of yarn you ever seen in your life. He never did nothing but lay around. And he was stretched out there in a chair, had his legs stretched out in front of him. And his wife, Mondi, she was trying to sweep up. And she tripped over his legs and nearly fell. And she jumped up and she said, look at there. You got your legs all stretched out, you old lazy thing. Good one, big old long legs. You're like an old mule. You're nothing but a mule from the waist down. He said, I'll quit your braying, woman. You ain't nothing but a mule from the neck up. They didn't know it was an amber day and they had not ought to said that. His wife started to say, you shouldn't call me things like that. But all she could get out was, hee-haw, hee-haw. And when Godsey looked up, his wife, Mondi, had the big, long, bony head of a mule, had two ears sticking right up the top of her head, great big old nose with the nostrils a-flaring out. You know, a mule gets mad at you, they'll flare your nostrils. Yeah, you know, there's some women that flare their nostrils when they get mad too. Oh, she was a sight. And then he jumped up off of the chair. And when he jumped up off the chair, he banged his head on the rafters above him. He had grown a good two feet in about two seconds. And he looked down. He had mule legs sticking right down in front of him. He had ripped out of his overalls and they was hanging around his neck like a big bib. And he had mule hindquarters sticking out behind him and a tail swishing around. He said, oh, look at there. It's an amber day and now we got devil poison on us. What are we going to do? Of course, his wife couldn't say nothing. Poor old Monty. She's standing there going, he said, I know, I know what to do. I know what to do. If there's anybody can help us with devil poison, it'll be Solomon Grundy. Now, Solomon Grundy, he lived down the road and up a holler. He's a real religious man. Yes, he had read the whole Bible in the original language, King James English. And he said, if there's anybody could help him, it'd be Solomon Grundy. He said, you stay right here, Monty. Stay in the house. Don't let anybody look at you. And I'll go over to Solomon Grundy's and fetch him back and see if there's anything to be done. So he ran out the door and slapped himself on the hindquarters. And he tore off down the road. And he went up to the holler. He rode right up to a window at Solomon Grundy's house. And he said, Solomon, Solomon, come here. Come here. i got to show you something. Well, Solomon wondered how old God C. Rourke could be so tall to look through the window. He must have been standing on a bucket or a stepladder or something. He said, uh, get down off that ladder and come in the house and show me what you want to show me. He said, no, no, you got to come here. You got to come here. So he went over and he looked over the windowsill. And he said, oh, what have you gone and done? He said, well, we forgot it was an amber day on account our calendar slid down off the wall behind the stove. And my wife called me a mule from the waist down. What did you call your wife? So I said, she's a mule from the neck up. Oh, you didn't, you did We did, we did. And we want to know if you can help us. He said, well, what do you want me to do about it? He said, well, I got really good, strong hindquarters here. And my wife's got a really nice head on her. I checked all the teeth. It's a good mule betwixt us. And uh, we wondered if you could take her head and my rear end and stick them together. And we'll trade you a fine plowing animal for three of them shoats that your sow shunted yesterday. He said, I don't know. I can't trade pigs for a mule less than I see the whole animal. He said, all right, all right. If you need to look at Monty, come on. Get on. I'll carry you over there. So Solomon Grundy come out. He climbed up on Godsey Rourke's back. He grabbed them overalls britches as they're hanging down in front of him and pulled them up like reins. And then he dug his heels in and said, get up. And they went off down the road. They went past Fiddling John's house. Old Fiddling John, he's out on the front porch sawing away on his fiddle, working on a tune for Saturday night's barn dance. He seen that strange man coming, riding on the back of a thing that was half man and half mule. He started fiddling a wild devil tune, broke all the strings on his instrument and ruined the whole thing. They run on past Fiddler John's house and they come to Preacher Charles' house. Preacher Charles was outside watering his tomatoes. He had buckets in his hand. And when Godsey Rourke come up, he had run so fast he had lathered himself up good. And he stopped long enough to say, Preacher Charles, 
I've worked myself up to a lather. Uh, could you see to it in your Christian way to give me a slurp of that water from them buckets before you pour it over them tomatoes? Preacher Charles looked up. Looked at that critter. He said, oh, my word, it's one of them horse creatures from the book of the Revelation. And he threw the buckets down, took off running down the holler road. They rode on up to their house, went in, and there sat Mondy Rourke in a rocking chair. When she seen company had come, she throwed her apron over her head. And it took them a half hour of talking to get her to pull her apron down. Oh, she looked a sight. Solomon Grundy checked her out good. He looked over Godsey. He said, well... You do got a good strong mule's hind end here. You know, that's where you see the power in a four-legged beast. It's all in the hind end. You know that? You know that if you're from Kentucky. Yeah, and you go to the horse shows. You know, you go down to the rail and you yell to the judge, Look at that rear end, judge, number 57. That's the best rear end you ever go see. That's how you win the horse show. He said, You got a real nice rear end here. And, and your wife's got a real fine-looking mule head. I ain't seen a birdier one nowhere else. But there ain't no neck to really stick them together. So you ain't got a whole animal betwixt the two of you. I can't trade pigs for a stump neck mule. Well, Godsey Rourke said, what am I going to do? He said, well, this is devil poison. There's no question about that. If there's any antidote for devil poison, it'll be scripture. Fetch me your Bible. Well, that took another hour to find the Bible because they didn't know where it was. Them rocks, you know the rocks, they're a bunch of heathen. They never go to church except Christmas and Easter. They go at Christmas time. You remember Mondi sitting on the back row? She'd sit on the back row at Christmas and sing, No hell, no hell. Like that. It's either. That's what they was. She said, I got that Bible around here somewhere. Only she was going, No, no. I'm speaking mule language like that. Well, finally they dug it out and they blowed the dust off. It is a great big family Bible they kept for recording births and deaths and crunching Bible knots. You keep a Bible to crunch Bible knots with? You know, sometimes there'd be a swelling up on your arm and you go to the doctor and pay $35 copay and he'll call that a ganglion cyst. That's a Bible knot. You just get the family Bible, whack it, it'll go down. You can save yourself a trip to the doctor. They had him a Bible for whacking Bible knots and such. So Solomon, he dusted it off and he laid into reading. He read about creation of the world. He read about Adam and Eve. And then he come to Cain and Abel. And out of that, he read about the Noahic deluge. And then he come to the Tower of Babel. And then there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there's the 400 years of captivity with the Israelites in Egypt. And then he come to it. Finally, after he'd read and read and read, he said, right here it is. Numbers chapter 22, verse 28. This year comes from the story of Balaam's talking ass. And the donkey turned and opened her mouth and said, why have you struck me thrice? He said, that's what it is right there. I'm going to have to hit you three times with a stick. Well, Mondi, she went to a brand again. He said, it's in the Bible, and it? It's in the Bible. And he knowed. He had read it in the original language. So he went out and he cut down a big oak limb. He said, ladies first. She stood for it. He gave her three good strikes and her head flew off and she's a regular woman again. Not bad looking if I do say so myself. And then he struck her husband and Godsey's hind parts flew off and he's a regular man again. And they're so thankful that... That strange creature, its hind end, its head kind of sucked together and it took a big flying leap and jumped right up over the moon that had just come up over Pine Mountain. And folks around there said, if you seen that thing silhouetted against the moon, you'd have seen that its hooves was cloven like old Nick itself. Well then, Godsey and Mondi, they invited Solomon Grundy to say for dinner. He said, that'd be mighty nice of you. And while she is frying up some cornbread and things, she said, it's real nice of you, Solomon, real Christian of you to stay and help us out. I'm sorry we had to trouble you. I wouldn't have had to send you for it all if my husband had been paying attention to the calendar, but he's such an old... And then they clapped their hands over her mouth for she said something she'd regret. 
because there's another hour on the clock before that amber day was over. And that was the end of that. Tim Lowry with a crazy tale called Mule Humans from a collection called Out No Book. It's been a pleasure to bring you all kinds of tall tales and folk tales and tales from the recesses of history. And we want to follow all that up with a personal experience story from the storyteller Geraldine Buckley. It's called The Interview, and it has to do with getting a gig on the BBC. Here's Geraldine Buckley on The Appleseed. Geraldine, you are very talented, but I don't believe that you are destined to be a great dramatic actress. No, I think you will find your niche in the BBC, in the British Broadcasting Corporation. Well, Mrs. Blythe had spoken. Mrs. Blythe was my favourite teacher. She taught speech and drama at Paul's Convent, the school I went to from the age of 11 to 16. And I took every class from her I possibly could. I did speech exams. I did speech festivals. I was in plays. I was the lion in Androcles and the Lion. What did she mean I would make a great dramatic actress? But she said those words to me my last term, and I really took them on board. And I thought, okay, then I'm going to work for the BBC. Now, I knew it was very, very hard to get into the BBC at any level, but with my noble enthusiasm, I decided I wasn't just going to work for the BBC. I was going to be the head of the drama department. I just knew it. And so that vision kept me through the next few years. I prayed and I plotted and I planned all the way through university and then I went to do a stage management course. And then the summer before I was going to apply, I got a break. I was flying home to Spain to see my parents and sitting next to me on the plane was this very kind man called Danny. He was about 35, he was married, he had a bushy beard and these lovely kind eyes. And I said, what do you do? He said, oh, he said, I'm a cameraman in the drama department of the BBC. I said, ooh, I want to work for the BBC. He said, you know, it's terribly, terribly difficult to get in. I said, I know. Do you have any tips? And he smiled, and he said, I tell you what you do. The best thing to do is to become a temporary relief floor assistant. It's the lowest form of life on the studio floor. But it's really difficult to get into that. But if you get in, then it's a foot in the door, and you'll be on your way. And he said, okay, I'll help you. And he took his card out, and he wrote a name on the back. And he said, phone this man up and tell him I said that you had to have an interview. And then he'll give you one. He said, now, if he likes you, he'll push you through to the next stage, which is a committee interview. And if he likes you, he'll make sure you get through that. It won't be a problem. And so I was delighted. I was thrilled. And he said, but just a minute, he said, I just want to warn you, this man, and we'll call him Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones is very fond of women, very fond of women indeed. And he particularly likes young women. And I think he'd really like you, but don't play that card, okay? Don't play that card. And I thought, play that card? Play that card? What does he mean, play that card? Mrs. Blythe said I was going to be a success at the BBC. I will get by on sheer professionalism alone. Yes, I will. So I phoned him up and I got an interview and I was so pleased. And even though I knew I was going to succeed because of what Mrs. Blythe had said, I was still nervous. And so I did what any self-respecting woman would do in that situation. I went out and bought myself a new outfit. Well, I went to a very trendy department store well, an upmarket department store, because I wanted something that was 
sturdy and yet fashionable. I wanted to strike the right image. And, and so I got this lovely little green and burgundy tweed skirt, a little matching blouse, a little wrap-over sweater. But the thing I bought that put me at the edge of 1980s fashion was a pair of bright green Mary Quant hose. Oh, they were gorgeous! Now, I was sensible. I bought two pairs just in case, and I tried one on, and they were perfect, and I ran all over town in them, and then I got a run. Now, this wasn't just a normal run. This run was the size of the Trans-Siberia Railway. It was absolutely huge. But it didn't matter, because I had another pair. So on the day, I was puttering around, getting ready. I was half-dressed, and then I looked at the clock, and I realised... I was late. I was late. I had to get out of the house now to get the tube. I, I, otherwise, I, I'd miss the interview. So I just I opened the packet. I, I got on the hose. And then I realised that this pair was faulty. The crotch only came up to my knees. <laughs> and there was nothing I could do. I had to leave right then. I waddled out of that apartment as fast as I could possibly go. Well, I got into the BBC. I was sitting in the foyer. And Mr Jones himself came to get me. His secretary was sick. We shook hands and he, he walked ahead of me and I was, I was trying to keep up with him, but it's very hard. It's very hard to keep up with a man who walks very fast when you're shackled around the knees by a pair of bright green hose. And I realised that even before I'd opened my mouth, my dream interview was fast descending into an audition for March of the Penguins. Well, the spoken part of the interview went fine, but then he said, I'd like to show you around the studio. Well, the BBC at that time, in the studios, they, you would have big coils of wire and you'd have big piles of wood, and I was doing my best <laughs> to get over them, to waddle over these things. Well, this man was looking at me a little strangely. And so we came to a big pile of wood, and he said, I think perhaps you need some help. And he put his hand out. Well, I realised that I must have looked very, very strange. And so I thought, I looked at his hand, and I thought, could I? Should I? And I did. I took his hand and I looked deep into his eyes as I managed to get my leg over that pile of wood. And then I carried on staring into his eyes and I held onto his hand just a moment longer than I should do. Oh, I was a brazen hussy. Hussy! I got out of there. I waddled out of there as fast as I possibly could as soon as the interview was over. But he came through. Mr. Jones came through. I got the interview with the board, and then I was waiting for the result. They said it would come by mail. Well, there was nothing that first week. Every time I heard the plop of the mail in the morning on the mat, I was out there. But nothing, nothing the first week, nothing the second, nothing the third, and then the fourth week. There it was, on the mat. There was a letter that said it was from the British... Broadcasting Corporation. I picked it up. It was very light. Was this good? Was this bad? And then I lifted it up to the light. Could I see anything through it? No, nothing. I was going to have to open it. My hands were trembling. They were starting to sweat just a little. I got the envelope open. I took out the letter. And it said, Dear Miss Buckley, We are very pleased to... Yes! I got it. I got it. I got into the British Broadcasting Corporation. I was on the way to the top. Fame and fortune. Here I come. But the only thing is, I then had to do the job. And I thought I was going to love it. After all, Mrs. Blythe had spoken. 
And even though there were some aspects that were really good, there was others that I knew I wasn't meant to be working behind the scenes in the BBC. And it took me some weeks to realise it and then to admit it to myself. And I had lots of time to think because I stood around with a clipboard for most of the time. And that's when I realised that although Mrs Blythe had been so well-meaning, she didn't have it right. And sometimes we can't listen to parents or teachers or clergymen, no matter how well-meaning they are, we must find out what we're meant to do with our lives and then follow that dream. Of course, we take advice from other people, but we need to discover what we were created to do and go for that. And so at the end of the four months, I didn't renew my contract and I went on to the next adventure. Geraldine Buckley with The Interview. And that wraps up an hour that has featured stories from Tim Lowry, Jenny Cargo-Strong, Laura Sims, Donna Washington, and Carolina Quiroga-Stultz. Join us again on The Appleseed. Our producers, Jeff Simpson, our audio engineer, Stuart Foster, Karani Namun, you wrote this hour. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hi, it's Sam again. Thanks so much for joining us for today's stories on the Appleseed. There will be more next time. We've been bringing tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal tales, historical tales, and more to the air since 2013. We hope to be doing it for many, many years to come. And if you like the Appleseed, you may enjoy The Lisa Show or Top of Mind or Constant Wonder, all shows produced by BYU Radio that you can find at byuradio.org or by Googling the titles of any of those shows. I'm Sam Payne. We'll see you next time.